Most of us love the idea of traveling, but between the constraints of money, time, and the hustle and bustle of day-to-day -day life, few of us ever get to visit all of the places we'd like to experience. On this show, Phil and Pete have conversations with interesting people who have, and do, live in some of the most remote and exotic locales on the planet. Together, we'll travel the world from the privacy of your earbuds in Vicarious Encounters. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Vicarious Encounters. I'm Phil. And I'm Pete. And this week, we actually have an old college buddy of mine, Matt Weldy, is here to talk about his time in Vanuatu. But before we get there, Pete, why don't you tell me what's been going on with you? Yeah, well, I appreciate you checking in, Phil. This week, I booked my first international flight since COVID got started. So. Yeah, it's kind of exciting to finally be able to travel again. I mean, that's part of the reason we did we started this podcast in the first place is we love travel and we love just the world and the people in it and the opportunity to go see it again is uh, going to be happening next month. So I'm pretty excited about that opportunity. What about you? What's going on in your world, Phil? Well, uh, one of my uh, side hustles, if you will, actually is teaching. Of course, that's what I do normally, but specifically teaching games. And I actually just came home to a package of uh, the 25th anniversary of one of my favorite games. It's a game called Bonanza. It's a card game about planting beans. And it's wonderful. It's fantastic, as ridiculous as it sounds. Yeah, but, it's, it's, that's a good phrase. I was thinking exactly that. <laughs> well, you're right. It, it sounds completely ridiculous, but it's a fantastic game. I just got a copy. They send it to me for free. And all I have to do is go down to a local game store and spend a few hours teaching it. So I am excited. Awesome. That sounds like fun. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, our guest. Well, I first met Matt in uh, 1996. He was the significantly older brother. I mean, he was the slightly older brother <laughs> of, uh, of a good friend who I was in a band with at that time. And uh, we were all in college together. And he was a junior my freshman year. So uh, I got to spend a couple of years getting to know him and then he um later on spent some time in the country of vanuatu and that's mm -hmm. what he is going to tell us about today matt how are you doing i'm doing great thanks so when were you in vanuatu we moved to vanuatu in september of 2015 okay and you were there for how long two years exactly really so you left september 2017 uh october 2nd is the actual date we left okay. but it works out that's very specific so it's about very the specific. only thing about the only thing i know about vanuatu is that survivor filmed a season there um yep but i would love to hear about a little bit more than just what we saw on the, on the show what, what do you or what did you love about vanuatu what do you love about the people I love everything about Vanuatu and especially now five years removed. I, all of my memories are good. So it's like, I love everything about it. I loved the pace of life. It's the people that I especially loved. Vanuatu used to get on lists of the happiest places on earth, just because the people are so joyful and want to visit with expats who show up there they want to be kind and they're gentle and they're known for that and 
different language groups, different people groups get along with one another very well. It's just the people are the best part of the country. Definitely. So, so what impact did that have on you? Were you happier there? Oh yeah. Yeah. It rubs off really easily because people are just joyful, laid back and really happy. And they just find joy in lots of little things because it's simple there because life is slower and simpler. I think it really rubs off. Would you say there's a correlation then between the pace of life and the uh, attitude of the people? Definitely. I think that that's a big part of it. You wait for things and don't think about waiting for things. I mean, this truck's going to show up when it shows up and they're not time oriented. Even the airport and the airplanes that are on schedules are not that time oriented when you're flying within the country from one place to another. It's not that big a deal. So when time orientation is not the motivator the way it is here, it, it changes everything, it changes people's attitudes. Now, did you find that you had to learn how to slow yourself down so that you could meet them at their pace? Oh, yeah. I worked for six years for a trucking company and scheduled people, scheduled uh, appointments for people at big, huge distribution centers that are all about being exactly on time. And if you miss your appointment, it's going to take days maybe to get a truck unloaded and you're going to have to be dealing with these things. And everything was always about where's the truck, what's going on, and, you know, fielding those phone calls all the time. So my whole life was about keeping things right on time and keeping track of things and coming back from that and having to do that relaxed thing. Yeah. It took a while to get to that and not feel like let's hurry this up. Let's get going. So part of my secret agenda for having this podcast in the first place is trying to figure out how to best spend my travel dollars. And uh, you're selling me on Vanuatu pretty well. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, like, so if we had gotten there while you were there, what would you have taken us to do or to see while we were there? Well, while we were in training and getting ready to go, CNN did an like an hour or two hour long special that the, I never have seen it. But the title of it was Vanuatu, Hawaii without the hotels. And if you would have come and seen us, we lived on the island of Espiritu Santo, one of the 80 islands. It's the largest island, and it's the one where Champagne Beach is. So if you're going to come see us, the main thing I'm going to take you to is Champagne Beach, because you've got to see that. That ranks in lists of top 10 beaches in the world, top 20 beaches. I, I mean, you've been there. What's so great about it? It's a beach. Oh, the sand is like cake. Everybody who's ever been there, we try to figure out how do we describe walking on the sand there? It's like walking on an angel food cake. Imagine walking on an angel food cake. Now, does, uh, and does, does champagne refer to anything? Like my immediate thought is, is the, is the sand like, like reddish or pink tinted or no, it's, it's a white sand beach and the water is just as clear as it could possibly be. When we got there, I just ran down the beach right into the water and just kept going until I was out where I was deeper than my head and just could see all the way down. And, oh, it's not very big. The little bay that kind of is enclosed there, there's cattle and wild pigs just right there on the beach with you. 
and it's kind of hidden away. You have to get there. So there's not going to be a lot of people there. When we were there, it was the five couples on our team and our kids. And that was it for an entire, we had that place to ourselves for the entire day. I got to be honest. Uh, you're making me want to cut the podcast short and figure out how to get there now. <laughs> yeah. This sounds amazing. Right. And Absolutely. I'd take you also up a little further from Champagne Beach to Port Laurie, which is just another beach, but there's breakers there instead of the water being still and enclosed in kind of a bay area at Champagne Beach up at Port Laurie, you're kind of out on the edge and there's breakers coming in and little islands out there that you can see. It's beautiful. But I'd also want to take you guys to Pentecost Island and go down to the south end of the island. You can stand on a beach there and see the island of Ambrum across a channel. Ambrum has two active volcanoes on it that are smoking constantly, but they're not so active that it's dangerous. They're just constantly puffing smoke. And one of the best views I've ever had was standing on that beach and just saying, man, God is amazing. It's just like, how can this be a place that's on the same place where I live in Texas and can't see anything because of the air quality. And you know, then you're looking at this and yeah. So it would be all about going to beaches, blue holes and swimming if you came to visit, but then you'd also have to spend time with the people. And that mm. would be just eating fresh fruit and spending time with the people. Well, Matt, I, I feel like I have to ask the obvious question here. And that is why in heaven's name would anybody in their right mind ever leave? <laughs> well, our kids didn't do homeschooling very well and they were all high school age and we'd promised our oldest that we would bring him back to play basketball. So we brought them back for high school because they did not do homeschooling well and there weren't very good options that we thought would do them well for the rest of their lives. So that was our that sounds like a good back. reason. I say that seems like a very good reason. <laughs> so I'm imagining in a place like that, the diet is a little different than what I'm accustomed to here <laughs> in uh, the Dallas area. So what what kinds of things did you eat there that you enjoyed? And was there anything that you ate there that was like really strange? The country is known for its beef exports. They raise very lean, very good beef that the Australians and the Japanese both really enjoy. The cattle are in coconut plantations is where they're raised. So they're eating grass. And I just always have this in my imagination, watching a cow get hit by the, on the head by a coconut and wondering, is that going to knock it out? <laughs> but the beef is just amazing. We hardly ever ate chicken because they, they can't put any weight on them because they're always running around in the villages and stuff. So, and the, the rest of the chicken is imported and it seems like the only chicken that they import is the wings. It's because Chick-fil-A is buying all the chicken breasts. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Wings are expensive around here. Try to have a party. You find out. Yeah. But, um, so yeah. And fresh fruit to live in a place where bananas can be picked right off the tree and you can buy them that day. And Pineapples are picked when they're actually ripe and you can eat them. And then mangoes. I love mangoes. Was there anything that you ate there that you'd never had before? 
the main staple of the diet for the people there is taro root, which is something I'd never had before. And I still don't really like taro. Now they also eat cassava and a sweet potato that's called um, kumala. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. Anyway, both of those things I really like, but taro, I have problems with that. Now, I never ate it, but the strangest thing, both of my boys, the second night we were in country, got the opportunity to eat flying fox. Okay. Flying fox is fruit bat. Oh. On an island that's that far out in the middle of the ocean, that's the only native mammal that lives on those islands. Oh, okay. Wow. And they're gigantic. I mean, some of you guys have heard of fruit bats before. They three foot wingspans or bigger when they fly over it's way bigger than birds it's a big deal if someone actually catches one and then they'll serve them up and it's just basically grease and hair that you're eating but <laughs> I, so, I you know you know i have to ask it, it doesn't taste like chicken does it <laughs> i said the boys ate it i didn't and all they could talk about was the grease and hair the i don't know if it tasted like hair. chicken okay so Obviously, one of the big aspects of going and living overseas is uh, overcoming the language barrier. And so tell us a little bit about the language you learned there. And of course, the thing we want to know most is, did you say anything <laughs> stupid? And what did you say? <laughs> well, the language there is called Bislama. That's the language of wider communication. It's a pigeon of English and all of the vernaculars there, specifically one of the vernaculars on the island where the capital city is. So when you say a pigeon, I assume you don't mean the bird. We're not going back to what the no. bat tastes like. What, what no, is no, 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 no. A creole is more developed than a pigeon. So a pigeon is um, very rough still. But Bislama, of all of the Melanesian countries, is the most developed of the pigeons that are spoken there. It has its own grammar structures and people have examined it and written grammar books. Phil, you'd love that. But because of that, it's, it's pretty simple to learn. I was about four months in when I was able to get in the pulpit and preach in that language. And because of that, I didn't really make very many embarrassing blunders because the vocabulary is pretty close to the words and vocabulary that's already filled my head in English. Sure. sure. So that makes it kind of nice. It's a place where you can't get as embarrassed. That's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I say that when we were living in the village and trying to do a lot of using our language, I of course made some mistakes, but the biggest thing was the, the word for morning in Bislama is morning. So yeah. Big deal. You say moaning more than morning, but I just needed there to be a different word for that. But when I woke up and greeted people, I would say something different. So the Spanish vocabulary that's in my head just came out and I would say mañana to people, which means absolutely nothing. And uh, yeah, they just kind of look at me like, what's that? That's not even really that embarrassing. So Okay, so something we like to talk about is how your experience compared to life for you in the U.S. And first, 
when you were there, what were the things about, about the U.S. that you did not miss? I asked my wife about this earlier because we were talking about this and trying to think through this. And she said immediately Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) The thing she did not miss. And uh, I would have to agree with her. I didn't drive for two years solid and I didn't miss it at all. And we talked already about this, the laid back lifestyle and then the just taking it easy kind of attitude. Um, I didn't miss being busy. You know, you have to be busy to be doing life correctly in the U S I feel like. And right. You're either, you're either busy or you're lazy and there's no in between. Right. And I did not miss busyness and I did not miss having to do repairs on a car. But if we go back overseas, that's one of the things that my wife and I have talked about is that we have to have our own vehicle and not be reliant on public transportation. But as I'm starting to think through this, I'm like, let's maybe not move back overseas because then I could, if I have to still be responsible for vehicles, I don't really want to do that. But I, you're, you're, you're honestly selling it to me even more than the beaches. Uh, I, <laughs> I drive over an hour and a half to and from work every day. And I've done that for um, at least the last 15 years. And I'm definitely ready to not drive. So <laughs> that sounds great. Okay. So yeah. When you were there, what is the thing that you missed the most? I think celebrating holidays the way we do here, the way I'd grown up celebrating them. We were talking about that also. Um, My wife and I were discussing that and we were thinking the buildup to Christmas. In Vanuatu, Christmas was just the two weeks beforehand and then the big buildup to it. We weren't seeing it all over town and all of that kind of thing. And the other holidays that we build up to here. Luckily, we did have a lot of Americans living around us. And so we still shot fireworks on 4th of July. And we still, they're wondering what we're doing because the 4th of July is totally meaningless to them. But, you know. Right. When uh, my wife and I, we lived in Ukraine for a semester. And it was one of the first things that was not shocking, but surprising to me. the, The idea of unregulated fireworks. That you can just go buy fireworks and light them off whenever you want. And that's everywhere except here, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Oh, fireworks were only a New Year's Eve thing to the knee vans. I I live in Illinois. And so you can only get fireworks by buying them in Missouri and smuggling them like contraband. (laughs) But the Missourians can't buy them. So you can drive over there to the stores, but... Anyway, um, wait, you just used a word, Matt. What is a knee van? That's what the nationals call themselves. Instead of being Vanuatuan, they are knee van. That's also from that uh, one language group on the capital city's island where knee and the letter N, it leads into a lot of their verbs or into a lot of their nouns. And it's just of Vanuatu, knee van. So, okay. Thank you. I was yeah. confused there for a minute. I kind of want yeah. to know what that was. Yeah, I threw that out there without without an explanation. So, other things that I missed: deli sandwiches. About a year in to our time living there, I was like, you know, people start asking you when you get back to the U.S., what's the first thing you're going to eat? And all I could ever think about was big croissants with sliced cheese, sliced roast beef and turkey on it, with fresh, huge 
tomato slices and lettuce and spicy mustard. And I've been back for five years and I still haven't had that sandwich that satisfied that want. Where have you tried? Well, you know, I've eaten all of the the sub sandwich shops and I've had a McAllister sandwich and I still just don't think I've eaten the sandwich that actually satisfied that want mm. that it built up in me. That's mm. now seven years building. Wow. So I don't know. It sounds like a personal quest. <laughs> to, uh, embark on. Well, I think part of it is that the sandwich I was remembering was my grandma putting together a big deli tray and having that at her house. And my grandparents, well, one grandparent has passed and my grandparents don't live in that house anymore. So I can't get the things that go around it. So I'm not, I'm not sure I'll ever have that sandwich. So there you go. Oh, that's kind of tragic. It is. <laughs> your your memory had a sad ending. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, something else that we usually ask is sort of about how um, how your life is unfolding now as you reflect on who you became during your time overseas. But I actually wanted to ask a ask a question that maybe will lead us into that. And this is going to put you on the spot because we didn't talk about it before. But Pete and I really want to get a sense of what it was like to be there. Is there, and you can maybe think about it. And if you come up with something later, we can, you, you can, we can throw it in later on. But is there a story of something happening that you would say this, it typifies my experience in Vanuatu and this is the thing, this is what it was like. And when I think about what life was like, I think about this event happening or this time, whether it was something that happened weekly or daily or just happened once. What is that thing that comes to your mind when you think about living there? Oh, man. Hmm. Well, I attended the best church service that I've ever been to in Vanuatu. I mean, it's like a capstone memory of my life. That's you know, that's one thing, but like you ask about something that maybe happened a weekly or was a regular thing. Hmm. So the man who um, worked with our translation teams there, Pastor Vusi, was an older gentleman in his 70s by the time I met him, and he just was wise and he was gentle and he was the type of person that anyone who would ever meet him would say, I want to be like him when I get, when I grow up. And he also, I think was a Jedi. I mean, I had an experience once where I was on the street and we were having some issues with getting airplane tickets and I needed to talk to him and I needed to get a taxi cab sent away. And life was very non nevan at the time I was standing on the sidewalk out in front of the offices of the airline. And I was getting worried about this and this, and I was trying to get this, these people in this taxi and send these people this way. I think it was when we had interns there and I was like, man, I really wish pastor Vusi would. And I, I didn't even get the thought finished and I turned around and there he was standing and I didn't even know he was in town and he was just standing right there. And he had all the answers for me just like that. We just, we really did think there was something 
I don't want to say magical, but it almost seemed that way about him. He was, he was just incredible. And, you know, I got to see him at least weekly and got to spend time with him a lot and just knowing him. And then nowadays I'll see a picture of him or something will happen that makes me remember something that he said or something that made me laugh that he did. And yeah, I would say just thinking about Pastor Vusi is a big part of the memory of that whole thing the whole time there. Awesome. That is exactly the kind of uh, thing I was hoping to hear when I asked that wonderful. Can you then now segue that into talking about, okay, you said it's been five years since then. How are you different in these past five years than you were before you moved to Vanuatu? I don't get angry as much as I did before we moved overseas. I still was struggling with being angry a lot while we were there. But I think the way of dealing with life and some of the things I learned and saw there and some of the people I met there and their faith and their attitudes and the way they lived out their faith, I don't get angry like I used to. What what, what do you think made that happen? That's fascinating. I don't know. I think I just, my world got bigger and it's not all about me. And I think a lot of getting angry is this is not going my way. I'm not in control. And I don't like that. And I realized that you don't have to be in control and it's okay. When you don't have control, you can figure out what's going on around this and, and do it differently or take a different look at it. And I think that's the way I see the way people there treated life. A lot of them had to go find what they were going to eat that day, that day. And it was just about taking life a little more easy. Yeah. And the way I saw them live out their faith, but also just live out their lives and and treat their young children well, differently than we do, but very well. Okay. I got to be honest with you. I feel like there's a possibility that you work for the Vanuatu Department of Tourism because (laughs) I'm completely sold and it's like I need to I need to go there that sounds incredible so this is going to be a bit of a departure but I have to ask for the audience um, I want to I will preface it by saying Matt actually was at one point in time a contestant on Jeopardy. And so this is something that I would like to hear him talk about. I, of course, uh, watched it uh, when he was on and enjoyed it immensely, but it's such a uh, fun story for him to tell. I will give him a chance to talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, it was eight years ago last month that we filmed. That seems crazy to me that it was that long ago. And I got on because... The station that Jeopardy was on here in Dallas switched. And because of that, they brought a contestant search just to Dallas and did an extra day of testing. So I'd already taken the test two consecutive Januaries and I got to take it again as just it was just open for people living within the viewing area of the channel here in Dallas. And took the test again and then got the phone calls and 
I remember Pete and I worked really closely together when I got the phone calls and when I was finding out that I was going and, but the lady who now after this season 38, where they've got these two long time uh, winners, I lost game 19 of the 20 games that Julia Collins won. Wow. And people ask me, well, what, what happened? And I'm like, She'd played 19 games. She was fast. I couldn't get on the buzzer as fast as her. And she had the timing down of Alex's voice way better than we could because it was our first time there. And I filmed for an episode that aired on a Thursday. So that was the fourth fourth show filmed that day. So I'd watched from the audience three times and seen how fast she was. And I was really worried about that. And I won the first round and was ahead of her by $3,000. And then she was so good in the second round and she got both of the daily doubles in the second round. So she locked me out. I couldn't catch her with final jeopardy, but I got the final jeopardy question, right? And she didn't. So, or I got the final jeopardy. I wrote the correct question for the final jeopardy. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That uh, leads us to the the hot hot button question for uh, someone who is now who is a, a, a Jeopardy veteran. Who should the new host be? <laughs> um, Mayim is actually growing on me when I watch episodes that she's on, but that single Jeopardy thing is really bugging me. So I think if they just stick to these two and we had to choose one, I'm going to choose Ken. I am team Ken all the way. And um, because he's now also a producer, he can't ever compete again. He's already locked himself out of that. So he might as well just be the host full time. But the other thing is my contract said that I could not try out again, as long as the host who was hosting my episode was the host. So my wife is bugging Uh-oh. me about when am I going to take the test again? This means and you're coming back. So at some point I will at least start taking the test again and trying to see if I can get back on. That's an interesting wrinkle for sure. That's yeah. Because cool. how many people in the last year have taken the test again? Once Alex's episode stopped airing. It's interesting. Thanks for being willing to share that. That was uh, that's really cool. It's kind of nice to know a little bit, little bit, little bit of that behind the scenes. Yeah. So I got to ask, you've seen some of the world now, but if you had two weeks, all expenses paid anywhere you haven't been, where would you go? I would go to Central Europe. There's something about Prague that, I don't know, it was some dumb first daughter movie or something that was filmed there and featured them being there. I just... I just really want to go to Prague. I don't know what it is, but if I was in that part of the world with these two weeks, I'm also going to go into Bavaria. And if my wife was with me, she would hate this, but I'd want to go to like Hitler's bunker and stuff like that. If I was in Bavaria and then I want to go to Switzerland and get up in the mountains and see some of the things that they did this past season of amazing race that Right now, that's what's in my head is that Central Europe type thing. That is uh, very cool. We actually had another guest also mention Prague and 
having been to Prague, I can also confirm to you that it is fantastic. It's a beautiful city, and I enjoyed my time there immensely. There's something about it that my Christmas playlist on Spotify is just completely full of Good King Wenceslas and versions of that song. I just have got to get to Prague someday. <laughs> All right. So we are going to transition now to the next portion of the podcast. It's time for another Vicarious Encounters Top 5. And this week we're going to talk about our top five U.S. parks or monuments. These could be national parks. These could be state parks. These could be anything like that. And I'm sure there probably is going to be some crossover. Just going to talk about these things and all the reasons that we love them. We're going to go through them kind of quickly because there's a there's a, a lot of lists with three of us here. But here we go. Number five. My number five is Vermilion Cliffs National Monument. This is in Utah. And I went um, on a trail called Wire Pass, which is a slot canyon. And this is on my list because one of my favorite book series is a series called The Stormlight Archive. It's written by Brandon Sanderson, who's one of my favorite authors. And the world he describes is obviously comes directly from being in these slot canyons. Like everything he describes about how this world looks, yep. it's obviously he was standing down in one of these looking up and he said, I've got to create a world like that. And so I love it. It felt like I was living the books while I was there. Minus all oh, of the man. You've just made me extremely jealous. I've got to make this trip to Utah someday. <laughs> My number five is going to be the Grand Canyon, which is an enormous hole in the ground. And uh, while I did not love the amount of tourists that were there, and that's part of the reason it didn't rank higher for me, there's a reason why it's iconic. And that's because it really is kind of cool. Well, my number five, we limited this to places that we visited personally, and I'm going to put Theodore Roosevelt Island, which is Washington, D.C. in the Potomac. I was 12 when I went to Washington, D.C. So the monuments and the memorials are all just like, eh, I was 12. But Theodore Roosevelt Island, I was there with my Boy Scout troop, and we went out there for a picnic, and while we were picnicking, there was a high-speed chase coming across the bridge from the Washington side to the Virginia side. And we watched this car pull into the parking lot where we were. A helicopter landed next to it, like seven or eight police cars. They pulled the person out of it, and it was a drug bust of some kind. They tore that car apart, searching for something inside of it. And that's the memory I have. And that's why Theodore Roosevelt Island had to get on this top five. That's awesome. <laughs> I've never had anything quite so adrenaline fueled happen to me at a, at a park. I don't believe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number four. My number four is Arches National Park, which actually I visited on the same trip as I visited that slot canyon. And Arches is by far the coolest place that I've ever camped. Like there's basically no vegetation there whatsoever. And everything that um, all the campsites were super, super flat. You wouldn't think, oh, hey, this is hard rock. You wouldn't think throwing your tent up in your sleeping bag that it would be terribly comfortable. But for some reason, it was incredibly comfortable. 
it was beautiful. It was wonderful. There was, of course, it was in Utah, so there wasn't um, humidity to deal with at night or anything else. And I definitely saw there more stars than I'd ever seen anywhere else. It was completely clear and the night sky was completely full of them. And of course, obviously the arches were also fantastic during the day, but the camping is what I remember most about that trip. My number four is the Great Smoky Mountain Park. And uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot about that because I know you guys both want to weigh in on this here in a minute. But uh, <laughs> I'm originally from the uh, East Coast area. Got a chance to spend some time there. It's just beautiful. And it's, it's the kind of beautiful that's familiar to me. It feels like home. It feels like my heart is at rest in that place. All right. I put for number four, the Mount Rushmore. But my favorite part of Mount Rushmore has nothing to do with actually being there in front of the mountain or inside the park. It's driving up Iron Mountain Road out of Keystone up to the campground where we stayed when we were in that area. And the, the tunnels that frame the mountain so that when you're driving through the tunnels, you're looking right at Mount Rushmore while it's all lit up at night. And it's the most amazing thing. All right. Number three. My number three is one of the ones that's less well-known on this list. I don't know if either of you guys have ever heard of Letchworth State Park, but if you ever make it to upstate New York, I highly recommend it. This is where my family camped when we went to Niagara Falls. It was about an hour and a half or so away from the falls, if I remember uh, distance correctly. And it was absolutely fantastic. Honestly, it had a couple of different falls itself within the state park. And we all agreed we actually enjoyed uh, that park and seeing that even more than Niagara. Niagara has the size, but there was a level of uh, serenity and tranquility to uh, Letchworth that was just absolutely beautiful. And it was very, very cool. I would like to see that. That sounds like a beautiful place to go. And I would never have heard, known, even known about it if you hadn't brought it up. Uh, for me, I'm going to say Rocky Mountain State Park. Uh, I just There's something about just the feel of Colorado and the experience of climbing a 14er that is just unlike anything else oh. I've ever done. It's just refreshing. And particularly, like I live in the Dallas, Texas area now, and it's hot, hot, hot in the summer. But you can go, you can go there in the summer and as long as you get up high enough, it's cold, it's crisp, it's welcoming. And uh, I just have some really great memories up in that neck of the woods. Mm, it's good. Great Smoky Mountain got my number three. That's where we went on our honeymoon. But my wife grew up in Branson. So when we drove through Pigeon Forge, I got in trouble for bringing her to where she grew up. But we were aiming for Gatlinburg and for the park. So I felt like I didn't really mess up that badly, but 26 years later, I'm still trying to live that down, but great smoky mountain. I'm putting that in as my number three. Number two. My number two is Kenai Fjords national park for uh, my 20th anniversary. My wife and I went to Alaska last fall. And one of the great places we visited there was Kenai Fjords national park. We are big hikers. Hiking is our favorite thing to do together. Whenever we get a chance, we always go. And Pete, I know you're a hiker. You would drool over this hike. It was incredible. It was four and a half miles, essentially straight up a mountain. You get to the top 
and you are on a glacier. It was incredible. We, the only drawback for when we went, because obviously we were only there for a limited time, was that it was raining. It literally rained on us the entire time. And this was like a, this was like a seven hour hike to do the whole nine miles, essentially up and down. <laughs> and, and we got rained on the entire way there. And the temperature changed from the bottom, you know, the bottom, this was, this was August in Alaska. So it was, it was feeling decently good, but it was in the sixties. But by the time we got to the top, it was below freezing. <laughs> oh. We're, we're soaking wet. <laughs> we come down and we come down and of course we prepared. Right. So we brought a change of clothes because you would be wet. It was raining. We brought a change of everything except socks. And I'm not oh. sure why, but it was terrible. It was a terrible idea. But yeah, soggy socks are no good. No, no, no. It was an incredible hike. Wow. It's just it's etched forever in my memory. Yeah, I have to confess, I pulled it up on Google when you when you said it and uh, you, you told me a little bit about it. And I I'm struggling. I'm just I'm distracted now because holy cow, I want to go there now. Mm. Man. Uh, so I'm going to say Sequoia National Park for number two. You know, you can hear about how big these trees are and you can hear about all of that. But the smell of the place, it just smells like life. And it's just it's it's surreal. And because so much of the foliage starts up higher up, it's like you can see for a very, very long way in the midst of this forest of these huge, just massive trees. And I, I love mountains. I love trees. And like you said, I, you know, my wife and I love hiking as well. And we had one of the one of the best hikes I ever remember having was uh, at Sequoia. My mom's family all still lives up in South Dakota. So I've been three times to drive the loop at the Badlands. And that's my number two. And I think every time we've gone, we always stop at the parking places and do what you're not supposed to do and climb up on them and slide down the, the little grooves and collect little bits of the different colored rock. I really enjoy the Badlands, but I never get to see the wildlife. We've got to go up there and camp sometime and actually see the wildlife there. And now, number one. My number one is uh, has already been on both of these other guys' lists, so hopefully that's an encouragement to everyone listening that you really need to go. Uh, Great Smoky Mountain is my number one because I sort of echo a little bit of what of what Pete said. When I was there, I have never been in a place that made me just feel more content. I was happy to just sit and be in that place, soaking up everything that was going on, whether we were walking and hiking, whether we were just sitting out in the, um, you know, in the woods, actually. And uh, Pete and I got to uh, experience a retreat together out there in that area and both got to do some hiking afterward. And that was the second time that I had been there. But yeah, it just feels comfortable and more beautiful than anything I grew up with in Missouri. I'm going to avoid any snarky comments about Missouri because I don't want to offend you or our listeners from that part of the world. (laughs) My number one is Yosemite. I honestly think, well, of course, I haven't seen the whole earth, but I've never seen anywhere more beautiful in all my life. It doesn't even look real to me. Uh, we came in, it looked like it, it just looked staged to me. It was just surreal. The amount of beauty of every single kind was just staggering to me. Between the mountains and the trees and the waterfalls, which there's just multiple waterfalls everywhere, 
when I imagine heaven, it kind of looks a little bit like that to me. It's just <laughs> unbelievable. And I've never seen anything like, like it before or since. And, you know, there are places that are still on my list that I want to go that may qualify. I've seen pictures of Glacier uh, National Park that make me think I need to go there as well for similar reasons. But in terms of places I've been, Yosemite is number one. So my number one is in Missouri, Pete. Ouch. <laughs> but Ozark National Scenic Riverway, and specifically for me, the Jack's Fork River, paddling that that is pretty much contentedness contentment contentment because it's just if you can get on that water and you're the only one there it's amazing i, I have to completely agree the jack's Fork area is beautiful pete i don't know if you've been there but you should go it's incredible yep no i'm one of those people who critiques an area uh after driving through on the interstate which is really a bad idea <laughs> oh yeah yeah, well, I-70 is not terribly exciting, so I, I don't blame you. That leads you to Kansas, which is awful. Um, yeah, it's the only place I've ever watched a car flip over completely in a snowstorm. So, yeah, it's, oh, uh, cool. <laughs> it has bad memories. All right, it's time to move on to our final segment. Are you ready? It's time for Unpopular Opinions. All right. Each week on our podcast, one of us will share an opinion that we recognize is probably a minority opinion, which means you might not like it, but stay tuned to the next episode because next week it might be your opinion. Or you might like uh, this that week, one even less. <laughs> you might like that one even less. That's true. So this week, I'm going to be the one to share the unpopular opinion. And it is, I am not comfortable saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I need to make it clear. I am... I'm patriotic. I'm grateful to be an American. I sing the national anthem, but there's something about the Pledge of Allegiance that has always made me a little uncomfortable. There's two things in particular. One is the word allegiance. I looked it up in the dictionary because it's not a word that I use every day. And I just felt like that's such a strong statement that I wasn't sure that I was comfortable saying that I gave my allegiance. And in particular, because of number two, I don't feel comfortable giving my allegiance to a flag. There's something a little awkward about that. To me, allegiance is something you give to a person, not to a, an object. I realize that may be an unpopular opinion, uh, but that's where I'm at. And you guys are welcome to weigh in. I think it's actually funny. When you suggested this segment originally, this was the first thing that I said as well. So clearly you and I agree on this matter. I actually went through the same process you did. I went and I did sort of a deep dive into what it means to offer allegiance. And I was like, I'm not... 100% comfortable doing that, especially because, you know, the word pledge is synonymous with the word promise. And I don't make promises in my life lightly. And I want to honor those promises that I make. I'm grateful for what I have and where I live, but I don't know. I don't, I feel like I don't know what all the pledge entails and I'm not comfortable saying it as a result. It makes me curious as to what percentage of people have done the deep dive that you guys have both done. I can honestly say that I hadn't thought of everything that much. The biggest part of saying the pledge that bothers me is how much everybody pauses before the word under in the pledge. And we've got our pacing wrong when we're saying it. <laughs> okay. And that is the thing that always bothers me because I want to say one nation under God, but everybody says one nation under God, indivisible. And they put these big, long pauses in there. And I'm like, I don't think that was the intention 
when they added that. So anyway. I feel like those pauses exist because we're all taught the pledge in elementary and those pauses are there for to help our memorization of it. That, that and that's, that's right. Yes. Yeah. But it, it messes up what you're actually if you if you're thinking through what you're saying, it messes up your yeah, memory. absolutely, absolutely. All right, so that is our unpopular opinion for this week. Uh, thank you so much, Matt, for coming on and being part of the podcast. We appreciate everything you had to tell us. I am not kidding when I say now Vanuatu is one of my uh, desired destinations. Uh, while I'm still on this earth, you made it sound incredible, and I have to find a way to get there. And how are we getting this podcast to that tourism council so that I can get my check? <laughs> we'll leave that up to you, Matt. You, you, you have our permission to send it in as an audition tape. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'd also say if you have a top five you'd like to hear or an unpopular opinion you'd like to share, feel free to rate, reach out to us either on Facebook or uh, you can email us at vicariousencounters at gmail.com. You can also find us, well, Pete mentioned the Facebook, but you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be there as soon as we get those accounts up and rolling. And uh, we plan to share stuff out as much as possible in those places. And we also have a Patreon. If you hear what we are doing and you decide you would like to become a supporter of what we do so that we can be even better at doing it, you can search uh, vicarious encounters there on patreon and find us as well well until next week uh gentlemen once again thank you for the great conversation and we will see you soon all right thanks again matt thanks guys all right bye everyone